It is a magnificent joy to open our Bibles to this wonderful gospel, Matthew, and let's take a look at chapter 17. Please turn there with me today. We're going to study the transfiguration. If you've been around church much, you've come across this story or at least heard the word transfiguration. And if you're like me, for many years I've read the story, I know the story of the transfiguration, but really have no concept, took me many years before I had a concept of how vital and important and meaningful for me this event is. This event is recorded to in all the synoptic gospels and always put in the same place. After Peter's confession and Jesus Christ's call to discipleship, and so this must be a vitally important truth that we've got to study. Why is it so important? Why is it absolutely necessary for Jesus to be transfigured, transfigured before his disciples? So I want to make this very clear and simple as possible. The transfiguration serves a purpose. It offers to us four proofs regarding the identity and mission of Christ. So let's read this together, the first 13 verses of Matthew 17. Follow along as I read aloud. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it, good that we are, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the Word of God. As we launch into this this morning, I want us to be reminded of the context, the flow of the narrative here of Matthew, his gospel here. Help us understand why it comes when it does, both from a historical sense and from a literary sense, why Matthew puts this here for us. And it'll help us find these or discover these proofs. The purpose of the transfiguration is giving us these validation, these proofs of who Jesus is. You'll recall, uh, we talked about this some time ago, but we've crossed a little bit of a border some months ago. We entered a new section of Matthew a new era in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, as you remember, uh, he was focused on the crowds, on uh, the large groups of people during the first really two years of his ministry. He spoke to the crowds. He, he taught in the synagogues and outside by the sea and healed people. He talked on the mountains and the plains and by the seaside and 
healing and feeding and helping people by the thousands. His focus was the crowd. And that crowd was primarily the population of the people that surrounded the lake there, the Sea of Galilee. In his final months of ministry, after really beginning with the the, the parables and then especially sort of culminating in Peter's confession, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem, and it's not that he did not speak to crowds anymore. It's not that he did not minister to large groups, but his focus now was mostly on the disciples, on training and teaching the disciples. He was headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the the hub, of course, of of all things Jewish. It was the capital city of Israel and had been since really the beginning. And it was the capital city of his opponents who had put him on the cross, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, even the Roman government seated there with Pilate. It's becoming clear that Jesus' mission was far more than simply being a moral man, a a godly person, a good teacher, a a healer, a prophet in that sense, that that his mission was to become the atonement for sin. And so as he makes his way toward Jerusalem, he begins to focus more and more on teaching his disciples these truths, on training his men what it is to be a genuine disciple. Again, don't be too rigid about this. It's not that he doesn't speak to the crowds at all after this and only speaks to his disciples after this. He does teach the crowd. He does speak to the crowd, especially during the Passion Week. He goes up on uh, the Temple Mount and teaches the crowds that are there. But generally speaking, his focus is now on the disciples, preparing them and training them for real discipleship. And this transfiguration, you'll notice it is limited to the disciples and not just the twelve, but it's limited to the three disciples that were sort of the leaders of the twelve. His teaching through the transfiguration was limited to the followers of Christ. This was a moment of teaching. Like I said, this happened, we even are told at the beginning here, it's six days after Peter had made his confession and then Peter tried to rebuke Jesus and then Jesus begins to launch into this idea of what it means to be a true disciple and In Mark, it says he did this plainly and openly at this point about his, speaking of his trial, his death, his resurrection. In Matthew, it says he began discussing this. In other words, this became a part of his teaching of the disciples that this is what he's doing. He's he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. The apostles must understand this. And again, we got to put ourselves in the sandals of the apostles. This must have been somewhat disappointing. We saw this in Peter's response to Jesus when he first made this clear to them that he was going to suffer and he was going to die. They didn't want this. They didn't like this idea. They finally come to the point where they confess him and understand him as Messiah God, and Jesus tells them, by the way, I'm going to die. This doesn't lead to a throne at this point. This doesn't lead to dominance at this point and the, the, the overthrow of the country. This actually is going to take us to death, and not just me, but you as well. It's almost like he adds insult to injury by saying, not only is it going to happen to me, by the way, it's going to happen to you guys as too. It's something that you're going to experience as well. I'm going to suffer and die, and so are you. So in order to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross. In the history of Israel, as they looked toward the Messiah, though there are very obvious and strong allusions to the suffering servant, especially in Isaiah, 
Some of you are in our Bible study right after uh, worship service. And uh, Pastor Terry's been teaching us, and Rob as well, but Pastor Terry in the last few weeks have been teaching us getting into these servant songs into uh, this latter part of the book of Isaiah. And what we find is that the, su- the servant will indeed suffer. That the people of God, the Israelites, had sort of forgotten about that. They glazed over that. That's not the Messiah they wanted. So they only went to the passage that talked about the glory and the dominance and the overthrow and the national and worldwide uh, dominance of the Messiah. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted, a Messiah that would come and bring military power over the earth, which is indeed true, but that's in the eschaton. That's at the end. They sort of ignored the passages of the suffering servant. You know, the disciples were no different. This is the kind of Messiah they wanted, and, and they ask about it on numerous occasions. Is this the time you're going to set up your kingdom? Is this the time you're going to dominate and do this? Is this the time? And, of course, you remember the people who, who followed him after the, after the feeding of 5,000. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to put him on the throne right then. So this news of his death, the news of their own deaths, their own suffering must have been quite depressing. And I think they would have struggled in a couple of ways. They would have struggled, I think, just believing, is this really the Messiah? Is this really God's plan? We've been always been taught that the Messiah would come and provide instant political overthrow of whoever is enslaving us. At that point, it would have been the Romans. And now you're telling us you're the Messiah, but you're a dying Messiah, a punished Messiah? Are you sure this is biblical, Jesus? Are, are, is what you're saying true? And then, of course, they would have struggled accepting their own task to follow him to death, to even be martyred. Are you sure that's the trajectory here? This sounds awful depressing, and all the wonderful things that we've seen and, and the sacrifices we've made already, surely it's not going to end in death. And so they must have been doubting. Is this really the plan? Is this really God's word? Are, are the words of Jesus really true? Is Jesus really divine? Is he really. God, and is He really the Messiah? They must have been asking these questions. The transfiguration answers these questions with resounding brilliance. The transfiguration is a divine validation of who Jesus is and what Jesus said. He is truly the Messiah God, and what He said regarding His mission and His future return is indeed true. His message of death, resurrection, discipleship, suffering, and future glory was indeed true. They had their doubts. They had their struggles like any one of us. But God was kind to them by giving them this validating sign. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the struggle of all of us, isn't it? Believing and adopting these truths, believing in Christ and His words, believing that this indeed is an era of not dominance and what some might call an over-realized eschatology, the claiming of the world, the claiming of the earth, going around and dominating. But this is indeed a time of of suffering and hardship all the way to the end. It's not exclusively suffering and hardship. We have have plenty of joys. We find plenty of, of happiness in following Christ. But this era, until Christ come again, is an era of hardship. And it's, it's hard for us to accept this. And so from time to time, we need, and the Bible provides for us, profound encouragement. The encouragement here is found in a transfiguration. These men were profoundly encouraged. All the things that Jesus 
said he was and what he come to do is true. This is a huge help for them, and it's a huge help for us today. If you struggle to believe, if you struggle to, to be a disciple, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to endure suffering, this can be one of the most encouraging, validating, verifying, uplifting moments as you gaze upon the transfiguration, just as it was for the disciples. Look up in uh, chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus says a couple things here sort of setting this whole thing up. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of His Father, and He will repay each person according to what He's done. There, of course, this is talking about Jesus' return, His second coming. Jesus is coming with the soul of the holy angels, and He's not coming to lay down His life. He's coming to judge. He's coming to separate sheep and goats. He's coming to uh, uh, judge and condemn people for what they've done, but He's also come to reward those of us who have followed Him and believed in Him. We get this. This Verse 27 of chapter 16 is about the second coming. But then what's he saying? Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, this is very interesting. Jesus notably does not say, by the way, you guys are going to still be living at my second coming. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. Now, some people think that that's what Jesus says, and they say, well, this is evidence that Jesus was delusional. He thought he was going to raise from the dead. He thought he was going to come back and set up his kingdom, and obviously this did not happen. And they use this to sort of, quote-unquote, prove that the Gospels are false or Jesus is delusional. But Jesus could have said that. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you guys are going to be still living at my second coming. What he does is he connects connects. His coming in glory to the transfiguration. He doesn't say, you guys are going to still be living when I return. What he says is, you're living, you're still living when you will see me in my glorified state. In fact, that word coming there is actually have come. It's really, you're going to see me in my have come status. You're going to see me in my glorified kingly status. There are some here, standing here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man having come, having all the glory, all the authority, all the beauty of His kingly role. In other words, some of you will see me, not necessarily in my return. You'll still be living, but you'll see me in my returned state. It's related to the return, the second coming, and the glory I'll come with, but it's not the same thing. He said, you're going to see me in my kingliness. You're going to see me in my glory. You're going to see me in my power. They will get this preview of of what it will be one day, the triumphant Jesus who will come again. And, of course, in all the Gospels, immediately following the time he says that, we see six days later, Jesus does give them a vision of his having come self, his kingly self. What they saw on that mountain was clearly a preview of, of what He will look like in the second coming. It's related to the second coming, but not the second coming. These men were privileged to see that Jesus. They were privileged to see Jesus as that glorified self, and that was the purpose of this unveiling, to preview this kingly estate, this transfiguration. It was there to encourage them, to help them along the way. And it's here, of course, for the same reason for us, to help help us along the way, to lift us up, to uplift His disciples then, but also to lift us up and give us a desire to continue to labor because our labor is not 
in vain. The transfiguration was given to them as encouragement, as teaching, as validation, as proof. That was the purpose of the transfiguration, is to give them a series of proofs to validate all that he had said. And he does it with the most miraculous validation of ministry. If you look through the things that happened in his ministry, as beautiful his baptism was, this far outweighs the, the glory and the miraculous nature of that. It far outweighs the miraculous nature of the feeding of 5,000. This is an amazing event that took place, and it stood out in the mind of the disciples so much that they continued to mention it. In fact, we read earlier, Peter mentions it as the very validation of all the Word of God, in fact, the validation of the New Testament. We saw the glorified Christ, and that was the foundation of the truth of the Word of God. This becomes the rock upon which the disciples stand in terms of divine proof of Jesus' person and ministry. So let's look at this story. We're going to see four divine proofs or validations unveiled in the transfiguration. We need this. We need this evidence. We need this to build a rock or to build a rock in our hearts upon which we can stand. These four things, the transfiguration, prove become the purpose of the transfiguration. What are these four proofs? First, it was proof of Jesus' deity. The transfiguration is proof of Jesus' deity. Now, if you follow there in verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Uh, by the way, it'd be fruitless to try to figure out what mountain this is. I know if you go to Israel, go on a tour, someone's going to take you up a mountain and say, This is the mountain the transfiguration happened on. We don't know that. Uh, it was hundreds of years afterwards that uh, they built a chapel up there and declared this is the site. We don't know for sure. And honestly, I, I think that if it mattered which mountain it was, I think the Bible would tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us. And so it was a mountain nearby. We don't know if it was uh, up north, if it was uh, further down. We don't know where it was, but he went up there. It says that uh, in, in the book of Luke, it says that he took his disciples up there and he began to pray, and the disciples, I suppose they knelt in prayer as well, and they did what a lot of you people do, and they fell asleep. Uh, you're not alone. I've done that many times before. Even in church, fall asleep during the prayer, especially if the pastor is given a really long prayer. Shut your eyes. The warm, warmth comes to you. And this is what happened to the disciples. They fell asleep. Now, that should sound a little bit familiar, right? Same thing happened in the Garden of Gethsemane a few weeks later, I guess a few months later. Jesus goes up the mount, begins praying. The disciples fall asleep. I think this is natural. It's been a hard few days. They've been doing all kinds of ministry. It's been very intense ministry. And then they get this, this revelation about the fact that Jesus would die. It, is, it should, should have been somewhat depressing. I think this is sort of a, a natural. I think psychologists and psychiatrists would, would, would tell you this is sort of a natural thing when a person is depressed. They, they seek escape. Sometimes it is through sleeping. Sometimes it is through other means like drugs. These men, I think, are depressed. They go up with Jesus. They fall asleep. What they should have been doing is praying with Jesus as he faces difficulty. Jesus is praying there. They are sleeping. When they wake up is where verse 2 picks up. And there's a description. It says, he was transfigured. Kind of a weird word. We don't use that. Today, the word transfigured 
is really where we get the word metamorphosis. He is transfigured. His body, his form was understood. It was perceived. This is indeed Jesus. But it has radically changed. There's radical transformation. And that's what they saw happen to Jesus. How did he change? For one thing, it says, his face shone like the sun. So you could just imagine this blindingly bright light shining. It's his face. They understand it's his face, but it's so bright they can hardly look at it. His clothes, you notice, became white as light. Then they're more startled. Verse 3, they saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. A little bit of America, not just that Moses and Elijah are there, but these guys understood who they were, Moses and Elijah. Verse 5, Peter starts to ask a question, question, and it says, a bright as light cloud comes over them and over the mountain, and God speaks to them from the cloud. Now, does this remind us of another part of the Bible, a mountain, a cloud, God speaking, someone's face shining? It should. Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, God is speaking to Moses. He says, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. So Moses was foreshadowing the Messiah by going up the mountain and God speaking to him and shining. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, Show me your glory, God. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make you. Make all my goodness pass before you, You'll proclaim, uh, and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. In the next chapter, chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 29, when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. They're afraid to come near him. So we have a mountain, we have a thick, bright cloud, we have the man of God who shines reflectively as a witness. And all of this is because of the radiant glory of God upon that mountain. And when these Jewish boys, Peter, James, and John, opened their eyes, they not only saw what would have somehow wrong familiar with their minds and what happened way back at the very beginning, they actually saw Moses, and they saw Elijah, and they saw a brilliant cloud. And they looked over next to Moses and next to Elijah, and they saw God, the source of light, no longer a reflection of the light, but the source of light is Jesus Himself. The true nature of Christ, the true nature of His deity was revealed to them on that day in physical form. They saw Jesus as the God upon the mount. And just to make sure they understood that Jesus was not simply a reflection of God, they, God put Moses and Elijah there with them, among other reasons, to demonstrate He is the source of the light, just as God is the source of His own glory. 
God then speaks. This is my son. He says the same thing he said at Jesus' baptism. This is my son. And you'll remember, we've said this so many times before, and looking at Jewish history, looking at the gospel, when someone is a son, they have all the rights, all the power, all the authority. And this is why when the, the Pharisees and the scribes accused him of claiming to be God, because he claimed to be God's son. They, they understand that. The claim of sonship of God is the same claim as deity. This is my son. In other words, he is the second part of the Trinity. He is God. Now, remember what we read earlier in the service. We read a couple of passages, 2 Peter 2.16, For we did not fall cleverly devised myths that we made known to you the power and coming of what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They saw the Shekinah glory of God. What does John say? John chapter 1, Jesus was God. He was with God, but He also is God. And it says in John 1, 14, We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Clearly, this is a testimony that, it is, that He is indeed God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Later on, we see in Matthew that Jesus is arrayed in blazing glory, the glory of the Father, the Shekinah glory of God, and the only conclusion is what Peter said is indeed true. Jesus is God. Peter, James, and John cannot walk away from this experience without that very clear truth in their mind. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. No other entity in history shown like this. You have bright and powerful angels. You have amazing prophets and kings, but no one shines like God does. God alone. And the disciples, as they see this, they must be impressed. The truth must be impressed upon their hearts that He is indeed the express image of the invisible God. And how reassuring and validating this must have been for them. How reassuring that this is not just some teacher. I've not been duped. I'm not just, just sucked into some kind of movement or really wise words or someone who has sleight of hand and can, and can do a lot of tricks. No, this is indeed deity. This Jesus whom we have worshipped, whom we've given our lives for, this one who now we're called to actually take up our cross for, this is God. And he's worth it. How reassuring and validating this must have been. And for two years they saw him act as a man. He drank, he ate, he slept. He needed these things. And I'm sure even though he said things like before, Abraham was, I am. Even though he said things like, I and the Father are one. Even though he received the worship of man as God would, as God only can, and forgave sins as God only can, even though he did all that, there must have been a lingering thought from time to time in their hearts, is he really God? And this is the evidence that he is indeed God, full of blazing Shekinah glory. They saw Jesus adorned in his fully divine glory. Now, no more doubts. And bring this on a personal level. We operate in a life that's temporal, right? We, we face our own struggles, our sicknesses, the doubts that we have in our heart. We have our sins that we face. 
Look around the world around, around us, we see all kinds of natural disasters and crises. We see uh, our politics that are just haywire and the chaos is there. We see war. We see difficulties. And as we get sort of consumed with these things, as we sort of live in these things, I think there may be doubts that pop into our minds. Is Jesus really who He said He was? Is He coming back? Is He really the Messiah? Is He really trustworthy? Is He really God? I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to deny myself, but there is this lingering doubt. And the passage you should look to is the truth of the transfiguration, this revelation that He is indeed God divine. It's proof of Jesus' deity. Second, it is also proof of Jesus' messiahship. Can I use that word, messiahship? Second validation answers the question as to whether Jesus is the long-awaited, promised Messiah. In today's vernacular, it would be something like this. Is Jesus really the Savior of the world? And what we see, especially in reference to Moses and Elijah, gives all the validation we need. It's not an accident that these two characters show up, Moses and Elijah. Sometimes people ask, well, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? And one preacher I listened to said, well, maybe they had name tags. I doubt that's true. Maybe they listened to in the conversation, or maybe, I mean, God was the God who actually brought these men from heaven, from history, and put them there. Maybe God just miraculously impressed upon their hearts. They just had instant knowledge that this was Moses and Elijah. I'm sure God could do that. Peter, James, and John instantly knew as they looked upon these men, this is Moses, this is Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham and David? Why not Jacob and Isaiah? Why not all of these Old Testament saints together? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you why. First of all, let's talk about Moses. Moses, as you know, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As God progressively revealed Himself to the people of Israel, to mankind, there was a point where He needed His truth written down, and He wanted it preserved and protected throughout the centuries, and so He chose Moses to be not just a prophet, and there had been prophets before, but not just any prophet, but a prophet who actually wrote down words that would be inspired of God and perfect in the original. God commissioned Moses to do this. Beginning with the Ten Commandments, that's what Moses did. He started by writing the Ten Commandments, and as you remember, the first set of Ten Commandments was written by the finger of God upon those tablets. Moses later would put them down as well. Those five books, called the Pentateuch, sometimes are called simply Moses. The Jews had a habit of just referring to those five books as, yeah, Pentateuch, sometimes Torah, though sometimes Torah would mean something broader, but Sometimes they would just simply call it Moses. Moses was sort of the representative of all that was put down, whom God chose to put down the truth there, His truth, and speak to the people. The law is so connected to Him, Moses was such the mouthpiece of God that they would simply call the law Moses. Moses was not just the writer of the law, he was the leader of all the leaders. He led the people out of bondage. He led them to freedom. He led them all the way to the verge of the promised land. He led thousands of leaders who guided divisions of tens, of hundreds, and thousands. 
Moses gave the law, gave the truth. He stood before Yahweh. So who could be aligned with Moses? Well, there's only really one other option, and that's Elijah. If Moses gave the law, Elijah guarded the law. Elijah stands out of, among all the prophets as the prophet of prophets. He actually led thousands of prophets underneath him. He, like Moses, fought against idolatry, went through history, and he became synonymous with all the writings of the rest of the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament. Now, the Jews break down the Old Testament in different ways, but one way they break it down is by saying law and prophets, or sometimes Moses and Elijah. Elijah becomes synonymous with everything but the five, first five books that Moses wrote. So sometimes they would say law and prophets, sometimes they would say the Old Covenant, sometimes they would say the Torah, but sometimes they would say Moses and Elijah. These are the men who represented the testimony of God in the Old Testament. So why Moses and Elijah here? They represent the law and the prophets. They re represent the message of the Old Testament. They are on the mountain with Jesus saying to the apostles or demonstrating to the apostles, this is the one of whom we spoke. This is indeed the Messiah that was promised from the very beginning, the very first words the very first chapters of Genesis speak of this promised one who would come, the offspring of Eve who would come. This is indeed the Messiah. And then all the things that were said afterward, all the, the prophet, prophetic writings represented with Elijah, all of them point to Jesus Christ. He's a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, Peter has a little interesting response here, and, and let's look at that. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here, understatement of the millennium. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter responds by saying, let's build some booths here. Let's build some tabernacles, some tents here. And some commentators have, have really gone to great lengths to talk about this. This is saying this is extremely significant. It's a representation of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, that God tabernacled among the people. And being near the Feast of Tabernacles, Peter had this insight, this fantastic insight, and he was trying to make a point about God dwelling among us, and he was making a statement about Jesus' deity, about Jesus' Messiahship, how the Shekinah glory there was the cloud, the tabernacle, and, and Peter was just full of inspired uh, truth there. But we don't really know what Peter was thinking. And we know if it was inspired and great and wonderful, Jesus would have said, yes, let's build these tents. But Jesus says, no. So that kind of gives me the hint that Peter was just doing what he does best, and that is opening his mouth and words falling out. It's interesting because the other guys do like a lot of us. They get scared, they get frightened, and their mouth closes. Peter does what some of us other, others of us do, and that is we get scared and our mouths start moving, and that's what, that's what Peter did. We don't know what Peter was thinking. We don't know if it was deep. I don't think we can take much truth. This is the only time that really it's referenced, this idea. It's not like the later on in the Bible we have references pointing us back, oh, this is all about the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know any of that. I, I think that Peter was just trying to involve himself or trying to respond in some way We don't need to be distracted from the clear point of this section. Peter was just responding, I think, 
as many of us would respond. The purpose here is to help us focus on the fact that not only is Jesus divine, but Moses and Elijah being there tell us that Jesus is indeed the promised anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christos, the Christ. This transfiguration is a proof of Jesus' deity. It's a proof of Jesus' messiahship. Third, transfiguration is proof of Jesus' teaching. Third validation is the validation of Jesus' teaching. And this one's pretty easy to see. Verse 5, God is speaking. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. I think this might have been a little bit of rebuke from God this time to Peter. All of this brilliance, all of this glory, they're terrified, they're in a cloud shining all around, Moses and Elijah. The other guys are quiet. Peter starts, starts talking and God says something and eventually says, listen to him. Stop talking, start listening. Remember why Peter was rebuked earlier? Jesus gives truth. He gives what's going to happen to him, his death. And Peter rebukes him. Jesus, in turn, strongly rebukes Peter. Another sort of round two of Peter talking and getting rebuked. They were not listening to Jesus. If there's ever a command in the Bible for us to listen to the words of of Jesus' teaching, and that's here. Listen to him. Stop talking. Start listening. This is this uh, transfiguration validated, it authenticated, codified, it confirmed Jesus' teaching. He knows what he's talking about. The truths, the doctrine that he's giving you is my truth. It's my doctrine. His teaching is being validated in the transfiguration. I, I, I think this is uh, what Peter refers to later. He, he's talking about the the veracity of the New Testament. He's talking about, we're not following, we're not just a bunch of guys, us apostles who've been chosen to write the New Testament. We're not just following some cleverly devised myths. No, we were given the validation that His words, which we are now giving to you, are truly the Word of God. Jesus' teaching should be trusted, and it's validated here in the transfiguration. This validates the New Testament for us. The the apostles were the ones who had the authority to put together the New Testament. They were essentially giving people, the writer of Hebrews says, in past times the Word of God came to you through these prophets and people of old. Now the Son of God has arrived, Jesus Christ has arrived. The Word comes through Christ. He is the Word. And we're giving you the Word that Jesus has given us. Really, the New Testament is the apostles teaching us what Christ taught them. So this is proof of Jesus' teaching, and we see this especially as we look at Second Peter. Number four, proof of Jesus' suffering. Proof of Jesus' deity, messiahship, teaching, and now suffering. Would he really have to suffer? Does he really have to die? Is it really going to happen this way? Or is there some way we can stop it? Peter, all the way to the end, seemed to fight this idea that Jesus would die. And yet, he has this validation that Jesus would indeed suffer. Look with me there, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, or you could translate, has indeed come. He has restored all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Interesting, now we know when they can start spreading the secret, right? This messianic secret, Jesus has tried to control it, to to control the time, to control the data, the information, and He gives them a timeline. After I'm raised, then you can be plain and open about the truth of who I am. And that's a good thing because they probably would have got it wrong because they constantly got it wrong. Even talking to Jesus, they got it wrong. Even amidst the transfiguration, they got it wrong. Even when Jesus would tell them the truth, they would respond like Peter and get it wrong. And so Jesus says, there is a time when you're going to be able to share the secret because you'll get it right then. It's after my resurrection. They bring up another question, and it's one of the the things that the scribes had been teaching for some time, that preceding the Messiah, Elijah would come, or a person like Elijah. In other words, they're asking, why do we get all this teaching about Elijah coming, coming again before the Messiah? Is that teaching that we've learned from childhood, from the scribes, is that true? Now, language here is kind of difficult to put in English, but I think we can understand what Jesus is saying. I think He's saying, in one sense, the scribes are right. Elijah has come. He does immediately precede the Messiah, and He has come, and He was punished for it. Old Testament passages, Malachi, Old Testament passages that tell us that preceding the Messiah, there will be an Elijah-like character who comes and paves the way. In another sense, what the scribes have taught is wrong. And that is that they believe that they will receive this Elijah character warmly to themselves and then receive the Messiah warmly to themselves, and that's where the scribes are wrong. No, they won't. They'll punish the Elijah-type character, and they will indeed punish the Son of God. Elijah is a type. He's a picture of the prophets. Elijah suffered. He was hated by the politicians. And all the prophets suffered similarly. And the most recent, most clear Elijah-like person would have been John the Baptist. They understood this from Malachi 4. This, This man came. They understood. It says that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. He suffered. The truth is, and Jesus had just taught them this, the truth is, until I return, until Christ comes in, God's people will suffer. God's people, God's prophet, particularly, ultimately, God's son, would suffer in this world. True prophets of God suffer. Elijah suffered. Elisha suffered. The other prophets suffered. John the Baptist suffered at the hands of Herod. It stands to reason that the one to whom they all pointed himself would suffer and suffer the most. And it's also true what Jesus said earlier. If you're a follower of mine, you too will suffer. Maybe it's different for all of us. Of course, we're not in a country that persecutes Christians. Now, this is the most persecuted age in all of history. Did you know that? More, pers- more Christians are persecuted than any other time in history. You sort of look back and you think of the times of the Roman Empire and all the persecution that was happening, but now we have more deaths, more people persecuted before the sake of Christ. 
There are many Christians who suffer, but we also suffer just the effects of sin, our own sin sometimes, our own temptations, our own failures. Sometimes we suffer the, uh, the curse of this world, natural disasters, sicknesses, illnesses. We all suffer. That's what this era is marked with. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This era is an era of suffering for the prophets of God, for the Son of God, and all the people of God. And we should rejoice, count it all joy, James says. So on the way back down from the mountain, Jesus validates for them that in spite of the glory that will one day come, in spite of this little preview of the second coming, He will indeed suffer, and they will indeed suffer. He proves to them, He validates their suffering, and that, that their suffering is not in vain. It puts them in fellowship with all the prophets and with the Son of God Himself. But this suffering will end one day, won't it? One day with a shout and the sound of a trumpet, this triumphant Jesus will come down and we will see with our own two eyes this transfigured Christ, won't we? Just as the disciples did that day, uh, the King in His full kingly glory. And on that day, we will be like Him. We will see Him as He is. And that day, we'll be given our eternal glorified bodies to worship Him for all eternity. Transfiguration is such a great encouragement. Great hope as we look upon what happened that day. What validation, what proof of these wonderful truths. Let's pray God would give us this hope. Father, we thank you for today. We pray that you will have instilled hope, the hope of the transfiguration, which is the hope of Jesus Christ into our hearts. I pray that those who may not know you, I pray that they would look to Jesus who would save them and it would fill their hearts with that true hope. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.